so I just want to welcome everyone to the Genetic Engineering and Society Center's weekly seminar uh, series, the colloquium. My name is Don Rodriguez Ford, and I co facilitate this with Jen Balsagar. And we're really happy to have some familiar faces and some new faces here in person. And we're very excited about our speaker today. Uh, before we introduce uh, Dr. Barnhill, I have a few updates, so this will give you a little extra time to chew and enjoy that food. Um, I wanted to remind you that next week's uh, next week's speaker is Eli Hornstein, who is a past Ag Biofuse Fellow and the founder of Alicia Creative Biology. And he will be speaking in person, but there will be no Zoom option available for next week. So if you are coming to Colloquium, it will be in person only. There will be no Zoom and no recording. So just to let you know about that, that um, option. Um, we have also uploaded the schedule for this semester. We're very excited about our lineup of speakers. And we will end on on April 23rd with the Ag Biofuse students doing a group presentation of their cohort project. So just a little, uh, just to remind students about that. We are gonna go out with a bang with you guys. Um, also this Friday, we're going to have our professional, we're gonna continue with our professional development workshop that we do in conjunction with the Global One Health Academy with GGA and then GES Center. Um, this time we're opening up to all graduate students. So it is this Friday at Tally Union from 9.30 to 11.30. And it is um, going to be with two research librarians managing your graduate research. They'll be talking about systematic searching, uh, data management, citation management, um, scholarly communication. Uh, and it's a great refresher for all uh, students and faculty, and uh, we encourage you to come. It starts at 9.30 with refreshments, but the presentation doesn't start till 10 o'clock. So if you want to come a little later at 10, you're more than welcome to, just to let you know. And also we are opening up the GES minor fellowship. So that will be started. That's a fellowship that is going to be due this March 15th, but it will be for starting in the fall of 2024. And it's a one semester fellowship for students, graduate students that are interested in taking the GES minor. Um, and it's a pretty, uh, let's say, generous stipend. It's 17000 for the semester. Um, and it will also cover tuition uh, and other fees. So we are going to be getting the word out about that. We'll be sending to all faculty and to students. Uh, please send it over to any students or departments you think uh, would be interested in having students apply to it. So more on that front. And I don't mean to have so many updates, but is there room for, there is room for anyone else who might have an update or announcement they'd like to share before I bring Chris uh, up to introduce our speaker. Does anyone have any updates or announcements? Anything they'd like to share? A quick question, does this exist in digital form so we could post it for classes? Yes, it's up on the GES Center okay. website. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so Chris, Chris will introduce our speaker for today. Thank you very much, Don. <clears throat> Greetings, everyone. Our first speaker is an established expert in stakeholder engagement and the governance of emerging environmental biotechnologies. But you may ask, why is their work relevant? 
The global, the global biotechnology market is valued at $1.5 trillion and is projected to increase to nearly $2 trillion by the year 2030. Governments, biotechnology experts, and industry leaders have identified emerging biotechnologies as a key technology for addressing complex environmental challenges. However, public engagement is a crucial element to securing their success. Our speaker has spent their career exploring the importance of public engagement and identifying mechanisms that maximize its presence and impact within the forefront that is emerging biotechnologies. In 2018, our speaker received a PhD in forestry and environmental studies from NC State University. Today, they are a senior research scholar at the, sorry, at the renowned Genetic Engineering Society Center, a leading entity in the investigation of the intersection of biotechnology and public engagement. This has led them to their current venture. Live from NC State University, and here to discuss if public engagement is missing the mark, please help me welcome Dr. Katie Barhill. Live indeed. Thank you, Chris. I didn't know what to expect. <laughs> um, and thank you for making an introduction less painful. It's hard to sit through your own introduction sometimes. Um, so thanks everybody who's able to come today. Uh, this is a little bit of an expansion of what I, I put together for the Society for Social Studies of Science. So I think maybe only Katie Sanders has heard this presentation most of the way through. Um, it is also, so the, the, the first Half or so, maybe two thirds, is really focusing on data that I've collected, and I'll explain. But the back, the back end is an idea that I'm toying with, and I really look forward to collaborating with some of the folks in the room to expand on those ideas. And it will be quite clear when we get to that point, I think. Um, and so I thought I'd give you like a 30 second intro to who I am, since I've I've known a lot of you in passing, but. Now, I existed before I got here. Um, so my, my background very briefly, I got my bachelor's of arts in anthropology and environmental studies from UNC, not recently. Um, and while I was abroad, or while I was an undergrad, I got the opportunity to study abroad before cell phones were ubiquitous, before the internet was ubiquitous, before the, the euro was on the was running the common market. And uh I had to use paper, paper maps and my absolute non-knowledge of most of the languages in play um, to, to get around Western Europe, however, train, high five on train. Um, and so that really put this little tiny shy kid out in the world and really started to see and appreciate a lot of the ways that the world looks differently from I did. And that was really an important um, jumpstart in getting me to think through some of the ideas that I do today. Um, and then I also was able to do a, uh, a field site visit in coral reef ecology, the US Virgin Islands. And again, exploring these ideas that there's a lot of lived experiences, experiences that are different than mine. And this particular started, started me thinking really intently about the social ecological dimension of place. Um, and to the, to the degree that I went on to study world heritage management, my first master's at UC Dublin, um, there is a picture of Newgrange, which is really popularly shown around the world, especially on winter solstice and summer solstice. It's a World Heritage Site in Central Ireland. Um, and really starting to think about 
Having gone to college at sort of the turn of the millennium, there were a lot of big questions at play and really thinking about alternatives to development, alternatives to the World Trade Organization were big on campus at the time. And so really thinking about what are some alternative paths to development, which is something I was exploring here. But you know, life happens. So I ended up going on to SUNY ESF for my master's in environmental science and policy, where I got the opportunity to train a bit under Dr. Robin Walkemmer, who's now famous, which is amazing. Um, and I got to work with some of the leadership from the Onondaga Nation to look at a watershed restoration plan, to look at the process and products about whether and how it included indigenous values in their revitalization and restoration plan. All of this matters to the story. I promise. Okay. Which brought me here. Um, and when I got here, I was introduced to this idea of genetic engineering. I came in with like watershed governance, complex governance. What does genetic engineering have to do with any of this? And then I scratched beneath like the tiniest bit of the surface and saw that, wait a minute, it is all the same things I was thinking about with watershed. It's complex environmental problems. It's lots of jurisdictions at play. It's lots of different worldviews at play. The last lots of difference, human relationship to nature at play. All of these big questions that drew me to think about watershed governance are still there when I think about the emergence of environmental biotechnology. You know, that some of the geographies are different, some of the details are different, but the same driving questions about how do we make decisions in complex environmental contexts stay and persist. And so, bringing me here, and I know you all know this slide very well, but it's important because I want to talk to you about today as to whether or not this idea of engagement as a, as a governance strategy is really doing what we think it's going to be doing. And I show this slide to remind me to talk about the breadth of topics that I've covered since joining the GES Center more explicitly as staff. I've looked at this from the perspective of gene drive for species management, for aquatic, aquatic invasive species control. Um, thinking about it from ch uh, chestnut restoration, which, boy, we got to do a whole new update on that because that exploded. Um, from thinking about it to uh, ag pest management, to thinking Latin American scale governance of gene editing, um, thinking about it from vector control perspective. So I've got a breadth of experiences here at the center that cover all the three big domains, that cover all types of different combinations of political and cultural groups. And I come with bringing this data with that sort of weight of having a relatively wide breadth of experience in the, in the types of cases and applications where this shows up. And I say that because I don't make, say any of the next things I say lightly. And I wanna expand on um, the ideas that I have this breadth of experience across sector and scale and geography and all of these different things. And I espouse a normative commitment to early and upstream engagement. And yet, I want to share some data today that kind of gives me pause and gives me some renewed energy to think about this more strategically and more theoretically. So again, my motivating question for today is given the ubiquity of calls for engagement, and these are all terms I'm going to unpack as we go along, um, especially surrounding gene drives, because the motivating, uh, I'll introduce it in a moment, but the main project that this is from is looking at gene drive for vector control. Um, engagement. What engagement activities are taking place and what are the impacts of these activities? So these are the big questions I'm asking about the data that I've got for today. 
And I, I bring this heuristic device, which I know is a really commonly used tool from NASM's 2016 gene drives on the horizon, to, to highlight that I typically focus on the realm of stakeholders, but that these boundaries are always leaky. And for the sake of today's presentation and for the project I'm working on with UCSD, we're looking at public audiences more generally. So this is a little bit different from what I usually talk about. And for context, this is coming out of an NIH-funded project um, with the PI based out of UCSD. And the piece that I'm working on for this particular paper is looking at a systematic landscape analysis of engagement initiatives for existing, this is a mouthful, existing novel genetic, which sounds kind of like a contradiction, and other vector control technologies, including gene drive. So all of that is to say it's mostly gene drive with some other emerging tech. And these are the other aims of the paper. Um, right now, we're also working fast and furious to get this survey out the door for AIM-3. But AIM-1 is what I'm focusing on for today. And just as a quick sidebar, perhaps this is well established in this room, but I want to make sure we're really clear. And I chose this image on purpose, and we'll talk about the language too. Just as a reminder, we've got gene drives being put together, uh, some of which occur naturally without human intervention, some of which require human intervention or are synthetic. But the main goal is to take a desired trait, move it through a population, natural backgrounds, typical Mendelian rates of 50%. But for gene drive, we want it to be much closer than 50%, much closer to 100%. Um, we're looking at population replacement, some for mosquitoes, and some is population suppression. So the idea it could be sex bias ratios where you drive down a population by generating mostly males, or it could be replacement and that your, your released organisms may not be able to transmit key vector-borne illnesses that are killing lots and lots of people all over the mostly global, global south, but it is not going to stay there. Um, and for the most part, I want to kind of breeze by this slide because there's people in the room who do this for like a living and I don't want to screw it up. Um, but I do want to point out that this was an intentionally chosen image from The Economist of all places, I think what you will, that calls this drive-by killing. So just thinking about the sort of language of, of the choice of the choice of language here, I think kind of illustrates the importance of having engagement activities around it because there is some energy around the terms gene drive. Um, and more specifically for my interests, why engagement, why it's so important for gene drive in particular is that we're, we are talking about environmental releases. That's true of a number of other emerging environmental biotechs, but gene drive in particular, and there was a lot of perceived risk about release and um, like place of origin and all of this, how much it can spread, but there is an environmental, environmental release into relatively unmanaged environments. There's not an effective opt-out mechanism in the same sense that it could be for other technologies. And there's a mismatch consent framework. So a lot of us think about the idea that the medical model of consent is very individualized. Folks like my colleague who worked at Target Malaria are looking at the idea of community consent. Folks that I work with, um, indigenous scholars and indigenous allies are really thinking about free prior and informed consent as another dimension of this. But in the end, there is not a great framework especially since the U.S. won't adopt the U.N. drip, was that the, another presentation? Um, thinking about why engagement is important, because people are going to be there when these things happen. 
And again, going back to a very well-cited report at this point, this is the this is my understanding of what engagement is. My research team's been using this definition since Jason helped put it together in, in 2016. We're really thinking about all the layers of engagement that think about um, sharing and exchange of knowledge, perspectives of preferences between or among groups who often have differences in expertise, power, and values. And this idea of expertise is so critical here. We think about different dimensions of expertise, credentialed expertise, community expertise, lived experience, all kinds of dimensions of expertise could be taken into account. Power, there are so many histories with, with colonial histories, gender histories, racialized histories. Take your pick. There's histories there that you walk in the door with, whether or not you want them to be there. And values, unpacking what it means for human worldviews to actually play a role in some of these conversations. And because engagement, again, we have that definition that we often go to for, um, to for introducing the idea of engagement, but even with that definition, it is still all over the literature. It is a widely used term. It's not very well uh, articulated. Or what is or isn't engagement is not necessarily particularly well defined. I'm teaching intro to STS this semester. It's like, no, guys, science is not easily defined. I think of that as engagement as well. But I think a lot of us, if not everyone in this room, is familiar with the idea or one tool of engagement or one framework for engagement, we can turn to responsible innovation, thinking about the role specifically that engagement can play when we're talking about the development of emerging environmental biotechnologies. And here I draw this out because I'm going to come back to it later. I think we're really familiar with a lot of these dimensions, so I don't want to belabor this point too much, but really thinking about how anticipation, reflexivity, and inclusion and responsiveness really draw out this opportunity for engagement. Thinking about anticipation, it brings it upstream. It helps to foster activities that can help developers identify potential sociocultural, ecological, or regulatory pinch points. So this is really thinking about that sort of early landscape analysis idea of what could happen. Reflexivity is one of the challenges that I think a lot of us who've worked on RI really want to think about how to institutionalize. But after these early engagement activities, take that information and bring it back to the developer group, really thinking about ways for the developer group to reflect, especially on these big assumptions that haven't necessarily and may not be ground truth. Um, when it comes to inclusion with respect to engagement, I see this as an opportunity to explore Benefits and burdens, especially those that are handed down unevenly, historical exclusions, and then thinking about the political power inherent in developing criteria for decision making. And then responsiveness, which for those of us who've read Still Go Ad Nauseum know that this is the linchpin for engagement. There's not really responsible innovation without this idea of responsiveness. And that means that these engagement outcomes on some level should directly shape innovation or decision making trajectories. So again, this is sort of, if you read Still Go a bunch, this is really what they, his research group drives home as like peak important responsible innovation. So I pull this out because we have this big idea of engagement and we have at least through responsible innovation, a sort of framework, a goal, a linearity to it, even if it's iterative. We have this sort of specific framework to plug engagement into and to identify goals and motivations for in the literature. Again, we want to find out if all of that that we just talked about in the literature is or isn't bearing out in practice. And I'm sure you can probably anticipate some of the answers. 
And so to, to do this, uh, some colleagues and I uh, looked at 73 documents related to more than 20 projects, groups, or institutions. It's kind of hard to be specific because some of these groups are sort of networks and have leaky, unclear boundaries. So around 20. Um, we looked at blog and website posts, media articles, informed consent documents, event flyers, fact sheets, white papers, and journal articles. So we looked at a lot of these different products that these different groups were putting together who had conducted engagement. We conducted multiple, multiple rounds of coding. We had such a hard time with these data. Um, cross-checking the ever-living, uh, we cross-checked for days because we were convinced, like we were just having a really hard time with our codes and I'll, I'll get to why in just a minute. Did some intercoder reliability work because we were just really struggling with all of these data. We ended up with 540 excerpts, which we performed qualitative analysis on using Atlas TI. And I'm going to talk about three main dimensions of the results. One being that most of these excerpts we coded as outcomes, which meant they described study results or observed impact of engagement. So they had a study, they were going to measure what was happening, or the like a pre-survey was done, engagement happened, and a post-survey was done. So these were kind of more academic results oriented. That was more the outcomes category. Um, but a smaller set of those outcomes were actually framed either explicitly or we could easily infer as recommendations. And so if we go back to the idea of engagement, hoping to shape innovation trajectories, either through the actual pipeline itself or through the decision-making ecosystem, we were hoping to see like, what do these recommendations actually say? And are they in line with what the literature has asked us to do? And so I look at it, recommendations for engagement, for governance, and for innovation. And these are kind of busy, but I think the key points are highlighted pretty well. So of that 540 total excerpts, we got 94 that we coded um, for recommendations for engagement. And that's coming from 31 documents. And you'll see this numerator, denominator, bottom number, denominator, mm -hmm. change, sorry, change a little bit because not all of them were exactly relevant to each subsample, so that's why that's there. Um, so the majority of these findings were also social science findings, right? These were not necessarily designed specifically to go into shaping the innovation pipeline. Um, so they were either testing their own engagement efforts or trying to understand the population in question. And Again, there was a recommendation connection so that if you had evaluated your engagement efforts, you gave you know, recommendations on what would happen next under best circumstances, or you understand the population in question and now you know X, Y, or Z needs to be um, done for it to be an effective engagement practice. Whereas the other ones were really mostly just looking at perception. This, this paired that perception with next steps. Um, and they, they, these findings really fell into some patterns. There were still patterns of acceptance to think about. And then again, often accompanied by some recommendations. Looking at prior community awareness, so really thinking about what's the baseline knowledge and then knowing the baseline knowledge, what to do next for engagement. Or lessons learned about how to best engage the community. And one quote from these excerpts, our communities are accepting of the release of mosquitoes and are willing to participate in deployments when effectively engaged. What can you do with that sentence? Not a lot, which is what we came to. 
All right. So if if they're accepting and like I don't know when effectively engaged, that's that that's the phrase that we're focusing on. What does that actually mean? What has that looked like in the past? Um, and this is the challenge we kept coming back to is that a lot of this work, a lot of these results came up with some kind of vague, not wrong, not completely off mark, just not specific enough to suit us and our coding. Um, the second set of results was thinking about governance. So out of that 540 excerpts that we, we flagged, 37 of them from 20 documents included reference to governance on some level. So again, this is either implicit and that it was sort of, we could easily infer based on what they were saying without it like, you know, doing that inner quarter reliability, we were both able to say that this is a governance recommendation. Um, but really looking at public and community expectations surrounding the technology, um, thinking about risk excuse me, risk assessment or funding. And again, residents widely ex expected to be widely consulted about the strategy. Sure, makes sense. And then like, I just feel like these are all very similarly phrased and similarly not specific. And that's just really interesting in how we explored our data. There were a lot of issues raised by the community um, related to regulation, legislation or politics, or who should be part of decision-making. A lot of that um, is really important when we're thinking about a lot of Aboriginal or indigenous groups throughout the world. Um, and this is no exception, thinking about making, making sure cultural values are protected. But that's where the sentence kind of stops and starts. Make sure cultural values are protected. Okay, that's great. You have a specific case. Let's see if we can go further. Um, and then thinking about examples of how governance might be organized. So a lot of this, remember, is coming from the vector control literature where working not exclusively, but largely in Sub-Saharan Africa, where there's a lot of different micropolitics that someone coming in from UCL or UCSD or something like that might not understand all the micropolitics. So really thinking about how like village level or household level politics matter and who you talk to. And so some of those recommendations factor in some of those considerations, which are incredibly important, these cultural sensitivities. And finally, the gold standard for um, engagement shaping innovation. We had a grand total of 10 coded for that. And that was again, with a little bit of help from our like interpretation of generous interpretation um, coming from eight documents. Uh, so this is where I think any of us who've worked in this space will be 0% surprised. So one, the responses really looked at the needs and views of publics or community members that could be used in developing the technical requirements for newborns and pest control or pest and vector control. So really thinking about those needs and views that should be there. Most of, most of this con concerned itself with the containment of a gene drive. Not surprising. Anybody who's done work in this space knows that's one of, if not the number one concern of public audiences, of stakeholder audiences, of even the developers themselves, that containment is priority number one. And that's what's coming up in these data as well. And so making sure that this confinement possibility is there. So there we have it, results from um, engagement recommendations to governance recommendations, to only 10 generously coded for recommendations for engagement. 
So briefly, a discussion about why this looks like this, I think. It's pretty obvious step one to like draw back and make the obvious uh, discussion point that our evidence suggests. that there is a wide chasm between scholarly goals for engagement, particularly those that are fixed in the context of responsible research and innovation, and the outcomes of actual engagement practices. All right, that's straightforward. So some potential explanations of this. I think it's really clear that the definition and term slippage probably played a, played a pretty big role here. So when we polled what we were considering engagement activities that could range from a public survey to a flyer going out to let a town know about something. Um, so obviously the entire world is not using the same definition of uh, the NASM 2016 G drives on the horizon report. So that is, it just is. It's not necessarily something to try to change. I think that would be Herculean, but it's just a really important thing to consider that we've got term slippage in the context of this work. I also want to point out that we drew on public, published, and public-facing work. An absence of evidence is not necessarily evidence of absence, and so we want to give a little grace in some of these places where some things just don't get published. I think any of us know that. <laughs> like some of the things we think about or have done just don't make don't make it to the publisher. And that could be happening here as well, especially given that I believe a lot of engagement is informal and conversations I've had that didn't feed into this directly, but are kind of complementing this is a lot of folks we've talked to talk about, well, I didn't do engagement, but I went and like talked to people in the village. It counts, right? Like, so some of these informal engagement activities are probably doing a lot of heavy lifting without getting named. And I think that's that bless you, that's really important to think about when we think about crafting what ideal engagement might look like. That informal engagement piece that happens, you know, when working groups at the snack table, if you're out in the field, any number of weird things can happen that can prompt these side conversations that make this a really valuable part of what engagement and looking and co-producing ideas and knowledge together can look like. So I have a small, not willing to die on this hill, but willing to climb it to see what it looks like from the top idea that social science as a vehicle for engagement may have some conflicts of interest. And I've talked about this in our research group a little bit, but thinking about the idea of conducting engagement and the service of social science, where we have our own especially academic social science, but probably most of them, you have a different set of incentive structures. You have the academic incentive structure, you have grant cycles, you have to do all the collecting, the analyzing, and it kind of feeds back into a very particular system. Whereas if you're talking about influencing innovation pipelines, they are not mutually exclusive, but they don't always work in, in sympathetical ways. Like sometimes there's some cross-purposing happening, either in terms of deadlines or timelines or funding or take your pick. So I don't think we're gonna like throw the baby out with the bathwater, but I think it's just something to name when we're talking about doing solid engagement work. How does the role of social science, like just naming it, identify positionality of what the social science, the role of social scientists might mean for someone conducting engagement? I don't think I've seen that as explicitly named in a lot of places. And I think that's becoming, to me, increasingly clear that we should talk more about. Um, and I think, like I noted previously, there's some potential mismatch of incentives between social science data as we may collect it for publication 
versus improved innovation outcomes. I just, again, we have to think about ways to be deliberate and intentional, but for now, I think there's a bit of a mismatch. Um, and, I, and I've talked to some of the funders about this, and there are ways to build this in with carefully constructed phrases, but funding mechanisms don't effectively fund relationship building or informal engagement. I think we, um, we when Carolina was here from, what is she, Island Conservation, well, um, she was talking about how it took them 15 years working with one village to be able to use their traditional um, eradication technique, which is vertificone, which is kind of terrible, but that's another thing. 15 years is a long time. You're not gonna get a funding cycle to last 15 years just to build relationships in a particular village. So as you know, the groups that I work with, like I still work with G-Bird, we're still trying to figure out what to do next. Um, figuring out how to, how to name strategically these relationship building or informal engagement practices and how do we kind of bake that into the grants or bake that into project plans in a way that I think we need to see more of because this is where, the, like, there's a lot happening. Like, we kind of wish Royden were here today because he would be able to tell us a million stories about sitting in some random cafe and some random wherever in the world. And, like, that's where he gets a lot of work done. And that's true of a lot of people I've talked to. <laughs> Um, and then finally, this is my like work in progress. You can throw tomatoes, but just, I also want your feedback and hear how this lands. Cause I think this actually has some potential and I'd like to, for it to get some traction. So another thing I'm thinking about is, all right. So we, we've seen this a little tiny, tiny, tiny bit in Europe from what I understand from colleagues, but how do we turn responsible innovation upon ourselves with We have all of these challenges. Uh, we have these lofty goals in the literature and we have what you know one set of data that indicate that there's a really big mismatch between what's going on and motivation and goals and what's going on on the ground and let's see what this framework offers us the potential to do so i think potentially turning these dimensions of responsible innovation on ourselves could let us think about anticipating being really explicit about those informal engagement practices as a critical part of that engagement ecosystem. Um, I know we already do this to some extent with the landscape analysis. Um, and I think that is one strategic way in our grant writing, we can be really clear that we need time and space. This calling something a landscape analysis actually gives you plenty of time to develop relationships and conduct interviews. And so that's just my like my strategic point for the day is like that is actually something that can help. And I know they're not in all grants that I've worked on that have engagement work. Um, I think we could use the idea of reflexivity to work either within as part of the team or in collaboration with those teams to develop, and I cannot stress this enough, explicit goals of engagement and return to those goals on a regular basis. I've seen so many engagement projects that just have engagement as their goal. And I think what we need is a, like an engagement strategic plan um, within these projects. And then having that plan, have action items, and those action items have deliverables, and like really map it out like some project management specific to engagement. And after being in the field along with R&D or research advances or kind of time passes, you may find that the, the original plan for engagement, we're not even talking about the innovation yet, for the engagement may not be achievable. We had planned to go interview 30 tribal leaders between now and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Turns out that's not going to work. Turn that into a formal opportunity for reflection. All of us have that pivot in research. If we can figure out ways to have this done more systematically, I think we might be looking at something really powerful for 
the kind of engagement work we want to push forward out in the world. Um, and the context of inclusion, I think it's really important, like step one, to be mindful of and work to repair where we have the capacity. Um, historical exclusions, pushing our existing networks to the edge and look beyond. So really thinking about who our echo chambers are and look outside of them. Adding stakeholders and rights holders to the process as conveners learn more about the problems and potential impacts. So it's sort of like a big collective snowball, right? You learn more about a problem, you bring in more stakeholders, you learn more about some of these potential ill effects or even positive effects that you may not have learned about without that particular group of stakeholders at play. And then going back to the old linchpin of responsiveness, and I think any of us who've worked on engagement projects know that not all social science or engagement activities go well. Like some of them go real, real not well. <laughs> um, and we don't really have a space to write about it. We don't really have, we don't have like a negative results section. Um, but I think, I think I would also like to see for myself included in all of this, um, once we hit that wall, if we inevitably in any of our projects, we hit that wall, we know that communities have other priorities, deliberative process doesn't always meet intended goals, shouting matches can start, whatever. Um, how, how are we, again, this is not the developer team, this is the engagement team, how are we able to adjust course in our own work and account for new learning? So this is something that how can we pull all of these great ideas that have been intended to shape things like autonomous vehicles and put them on ourselves as we try to do better? Because and a lot of the spaces where I work, there's some concern that we want to get it right so badly, we're not taking the next step. And I actually think that's inherently problematic. Like I understand the, the goal and the motivation for wanting to get it right, wanting not to reproduce historical problems, wanting to make sure we've got the right stakeholders, wanting to make sure our table's open to the right people at the right time, blah, whatever. Like take, take your pick, there's so many things that most people I know come in with like absolutely like trying to do their due diligence with the right intentions and then get stuck because they don't have it perfect. And I think that using the idea of responsible innovation to help guide our engagement scholarship and practice can really help us like take that step forward, whatever the project may be, and, and know with confidence that you have a really clear framework to help you make it better when you inevitably screw it up a little bit. Because the goal isn't to like admonish anyone who's done like bad work. The goal is to just figure out ways to continue to get better. And if we could institutionalize those processes of improvement even a little bit, I think our engagement work would be, will be much stronger for it. And if I remember correctly, yes, that's the end. <laughs> Thank you, Katie. Um, Chat. Um, for everyone on the line, if you'd like to participate in the discussion, please please do. Um, if you would like to ask your question, use the raise your hand function. If you'd like us to read it for you, just throw it in the chat and don't read it. Um, anyone in the room? Uh, I really I really like that presentation. I like the idea of especially like getting very specific with the engagement like goals rather than just very broad. I guess just for my own knowledge, I'm curious. Under that framework, how would you like measure engagement? What would it look like to, right. to measure it? Feel like this was a success? Yes, right. And I think that's a that's a really great question. And I think there's a lot of pushback on getting us to like 
do best practices, do metrics. There's a lot like program evaluation and engagement. There's a lot of pushback on here, like whether or not we should or shouldn't. Um, and I think the way that's worked for me and the projects I've worked on is that it's really project dependent. And I know that's a cop out of an answer. But like, you know, if one project's goal, like I, I think about, you know, colleagues at Target Malaria, when their goal has an urgency and a sort of a different approach than thinking about folks who are doing, I would say the chestnut with our projects no longer working out for us, uh, the G-Bird research, right? Like the urgency and the goals are different. The scales are different. The geographies are different. The socio-ecological systems are different. So there has to be some sort of case dependence there. Um, but I do think drawing on the literature which again is going to be variable depending on your issue. The drawing on the literature helps ground you and not like you're not reinventing a wheel. You're standing on the shoulders of giants no matter what you do, but really thinking about how to strike that balance between drawing in the literature but taking it depending answer. <laughs> yeah, Jean. Um, thank you very much. This is a very refreshing talk, and it's great to see social scientists talking about this. Um, I have um Two comments. One is from um, the kind of neighboring space of science communication that um, as soon as the term engagement got introduced, then everyone was doing engagement because engagement is the value positive term while science communication is one way and deficit model and negative. Um, and I'll, leave, I'll send it to you. There's actually been a, a study somewhat similar to yours that went out and just found everything people were doing with that they were calling engagement, and a big chunk of it was just regular old science yeah. communication. So it, um, once you have this value-oriented term, of course, that's what everyone has to do, because otherwise they're doing something bad. Um, okay, so that's comment number one. Comment number two, so there's like inflation. Um, comment number two is that I want to question your deflationary terminology. Um, what you term informal engagement is probably, it's like we've already questioned the term engagement, so it may, who knows whether it's engagement, but it probably is not informal. What it is, is not supervised by social scientists. Um, if you go to a authoritative person in a village and have a talk with them, I, I strongly suspect that there are a lot of formalities that you have to follow, but those are, uh, in other words, there's rich communicative practices that are already in place, but they're largely in place because of the people themselves are maintaining them. Mm -hmm. Like you referred to micropolitics, there are already local ways that this kind of politics gets done. Um, and to, to, to call those informal engagement seems to underrate their specificity um, and and resilience, even in the face of outside people like engagement specialists or scientists coming in. Thank you for that. And thanks for the first point, because a lot of what we did stumble upon was like easily we would categorize as communication. Agreed. And to your second point, that's really interesting because I think of it as a bigger, a big umbrella, which I am certainly happy to reflect on term usage, because also I was thinking of some of the working groups I've been a part of. Some of between stakeholders, including the engagement team, some of the most aha moments have come from like around the coffee table. So like figuring out a way to account for a term that can account for such a breadth may be inherently problematic, but thinking about how to parse out those differences between, to your point, there's a lot of formality involved in visiting a lot of different places. So figuring out a way that could cover 
that unpublished um, sets of conversations, it's, it's, it's valuable, but I think that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, like not, uh, not calling it from the start, informal engagement might be another thing to add to your list is uh, when you go in, when you go and start investigating local communities or stakeholders, one thing you want to investigate is their communication practices, right? right? Not not their attitudes, but how are they work? They their community has problems. How are they? How do they work out those problems? Because if you want to really engage them, um, you have it's not by imposing the academic definition of engagement on them. It's by actually participating. At least to some extent in right. their in their right. practices. Right. And I love that point too, because a big part of what this conversations that led to what will eventually be this paper before the middle of the year is so much comes from those like site visits or those conversations in person and learning about like what it actually has that lived experience there in place. We were really struggling with the phrase. So thank you for bringing up that. That's really important. Thank you. This is a question I get asked a lot too, too when talking about um, public engagement and the value of it. But do you have any like really standout examples of when it's worked well, <laughs> and then by what criteria it is working well? That is related to the next question as well. So, so what are those examples, and what are the procedures or the processes, and what are the outcomes um, when you see a case that's working well? Um, and is that informal or formal? I, I really appreciate your point about like the mixing of the social science research with the engagement, and sometimes those two don't align very well. So what, what is an example of where either that can work well, the mixing of the two or the separation of the two? And, and what are some case studies that you really point to that, boy, this was great, and this really had an impact in whatever way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that is an evergreen question. and. Um, it's a really challenging one because from my own premise, like starting out making really explicit engagement goals, I don't really see having tracked like making goals to outcomes. I think the one that stands up, um, and a lot of people in this room are quite familiar, is that you know when we we've had workshops and most all, all forms of engagement activities to the Gbird project, and that has indeed adjusted prioritization of something like a locally fixed allele. It's had them reevaluate re their island selection criteria. Um, and it's hard to say whether or not that is a success, given that, you know, Paul Thomas is still working on them mice down there. <laughs> so like, but I think the idea that the team showed up, were willing to sit there and say, oh, this locally fixed idea is critical, or this idea of where where we want to put my first and even contesting the idea that an island is a logical first choice that's been held tight for so long that's now like being contested. Um, so I think in terms of openness for my personal participation, I've seen the Gbird project be the most open. And yet even there, even we're running up against funding challenges, being able to can't get a, like a big couple grant together. We're really struggling with a lot of integrated research. But in terms of openness and actually seeing what they want to focus on, adjust course. Um, and I also know, not from personal experience, but secondhand experience, that Omar uh, adjusted course in one of his insects, which, you know, it was, sorry. But after speaking with audiences, why don't you just do X, like, you know, Omar Akbari decided to focus on another dimension or even another technique. 
that was just as effective, but not as controversial. So those, again, I would have to look up the details or follow up with a conversation, but I know that they're out there. Um, but I think the challenge has been getting a, getting a, a group. There's so much of this that happening. So much of this you build as you go, you build that ship as you fly it. Like you can't necessarily have everything exactly in place before you go. And so really figuring out how to measure success, I think is part of this responsible innovation idea is how can we use that framework to let us reflect. And so once we've done our anticipation to build out what success might look like and then come back to it. So that's a tricky one. So in general, impacts on technology development is kind of one premier, you know, like right. standard engagement. Right. And then the force of technology development. And that's, that's again, and I'm not trying to say it, like literature and practice are always like crazy miles apart, but for this one, it seems like there's a lot of SDF scholars talking about emerging tech governance. And there's all these people doing engagement across lots of different sectors. And, you know, is that disconnect inherently problematic? And if so, in what ways? And is it that innovation shaping? Is that the one way that it, you really want to be able to connect more tightly? I'll piggyback. Do you think? Success could ever be a like rejection or restraint, like not adjusting the force, but actually stopping a, a, a moratorium. Basically, like, could success ever be conceptualized? Right. right? Like, I think success would be in the eye of the beholder. Right. Like either the project doesn't work for technical reasons, which is probably going to be more common with G drives than a lot of us want to admit. But also there's some real interesting work being done around intentional extinction and like public groups. And I'm participating in something in Hastings in May that's about this. It's like, it what if, what if no? Like what if your go or no go is a no? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think I can think of plenty of groups for him that would count as a success. But then in the same case, there'd be a lot of pissed off people. So yeah. it's a beholder issue, I think. I, I think if it's if Success as moratorium is like off the table. That I think that's where you get into tricky situations of like a conflict of interest. Because if it's if success can't be a rejection, then you resent like then that's focus group research. Right. That's just getting people together to ask like how can we tailor it to their to their needs without yeah you know, that's getting really blurry then for me at least um, between focus group and like market research, basically. right? Right, and for something like this, one of the questions that keeps coming up is: Should a particular group have outsized veto power because of historical issues, because of geographic issues, or all kinds of questions about whether or not that's going to happen, um, especially with G drive? Yeah, the question slash comments. Um, thanks, first of all, for your wonderful presentation. That was really fun to hear, also from the beginning, like where you came from <laughs> and, and then the story. So thanks for that. Um, okay, so my being a non-social scientist, but thrown into the deep end of some of this engagement work on some of our technology projects is that um, I have also often experienced, you know, limited funding or limited appetite for funding. Like we, we have this technology, we want to engage different stakeholders, but with the goal of eventually them liking it, them accepting it, um, us maybe changing our innovation to be more in line with them. So in, you know, with that goal, it's not necessarily just to facilitate conversations or relationships. And so, you know, we've struggled with having enough funding, right, to have enough people on our teams to do some of that technology-driven work. So what's my question? So I guess my question is like, 
what recommendations do you have? Like when, when somebody approaches you, hey, can you be part of the proposal? Because we need somebody to do the outreach and engagement efforts, you know, with these kind of implicit goals. Um, how do you ask them to have adequate resources? Or what does that look like for you? <laughs> it looks like getting told no. Um, <laughs> I mean, I know you and I have talked about this offline, that trying to get a center off the ground and if more recent, I was part of a grant recently that just wanted one social scientist, and I asked for a team of three and additional money. And I'm like, so you really want this done, huh? Um, so I think one of the things to think about is, and we've talked about this in some of the project teams I've been working on, is we know program directors, we know program officers, we work with them regularly, both to either, you know, inquire about grants, do the LOI. There's just all kinds of ways that a lot of us know program officers at different funders. Could we actually just start having these conversations? Like we invite them to these panels, we invite them to these workshops that a lot of us are holding. Like they're able to attend and we keep making the case. Is that one way that we as a group, because we do hold events, we do hold workshops, we do have direct relationships, like you know, with NSF or NIH or any of these um larger institutions, can can we start advocating for that? Is that a possible pathway? And I know. Whoever we talk to is trapped in a bureaucracy, but I've been thinking, and with one other colleague, like, why don't we start telling the funders the stuff that we've been telling each other? And I don't know if that's viable. That could be my naivete, but I've been really thinking about, like, how are we supposed to do this without money? And having those folks show up at some of these, these types of events or virtual events or workshops that are bigger, that are content specific. Yeah. Because for me, I feel like maybe that's part of the reason why there's that vibe between the, like what we could do in theory, what would be good to do, but what happens on the ground. Because often, at least in my world, like there's just not enough funding to do all the things. So, you know, we try to focus on like what's the most important thing for that agency, for the center. Um, I mean, yeah, and I think even in the constraints of budget, which I'm not going to go away, is that really thinking about that early alignment of what are the goals, reassessing, like just... If you have if you have any engagement team whatsoever, starting with that goal identification and having it baked into your Gantt chart, how often are we checking in to make sure that it's doing what we think it's doing? I mean, yeah, I I, I would love to create more money for it. <laughs> I definitely get enough asks. <laughs> and I might be off base here, but that also kind of connects to the misalignment because if you have limited resources, then you're placing more pressure on the the science publishing aspect, like you, you're putting social scientists under more pressure to create a result that they can publish mm -hmm. rather than to create a successful engagement project. Right, that's 100% baked into part of it, right? It's like, why get you, you don't get negative results published, you don't get, I mean, sometimes they're interesting anecdotes and perspectives, but yeah, absolutely, that's definitely baked into that problem. I think uh, it's time to call it for today. So everyone help me thank Katie. So next week will be Eli Munstein, who is an ag biofuse alum, and we'll be talking about his new ventures in industry and starting a startup, biotech startup. So really uh, looking forward to that. But again, remember that will be in-person only, so please make the effort to show up because you'll be by yourself on the computer with nothing to look at if you don't. <laughs> okay, and, uh, you know, you can play it. <laughs>